Hello, and welcome to the Architect Debt Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Brady. Architect Debt is a podcast that illuminates the lesser heard stories of Women Plus in architecture and related fields. On today's episode of Architect Debt, we share a conversation with Angela Watson. Angela is the president and CEO of Shepley Bullfinch, a national architecture firm with a focus on education, healthcare, urban development, and science and tech. In 2024, Shepley Bullfinch is celebrating their 150th anniversary. We talk about how the company has evolved over time, as well as Angela's role to shape the firm moving forward. On this episode, we talk about Angela's career progression from designer and educator to principal and most recently CEO. We talk about how her responsibilities and priorities have shifted and why she considers herself a dot connector. We also talk about what challenges and opportunities come with leadership. Next, we talk about flexibility and hybrid work, the tools that the firm are using to enhance engagement and collaboration, potential applications for AI, and soft skills that stand out during the hiring process. Angela also advises on ways to curate a mentor-mentee relationship, including what to ask, how to ask, and moments in her career when she learned the biggest lessons. We end by discussing Angela's renovation of a Gropius Brewer Bauhaus cottage in the woods, the challenges of renovation and how changing the building actually saved it from demolition. If you're curious to learn more about Angela and Shepley Bullfinch, please see the links in our show notes. You can show the podcast some love by joining our communities on Instagram, LinkedIn, joining our newsletter, and leaving us a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Enjoy the episode. Angela, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. (laughs) You are the president and CEO of Shepley Bullfinch since 2021, but you've worked at the firm for over 21 years. How have your responsibilities and priorities changed as your career has advanced? Well, well, it was a big leap. (laughs) So 21 years ago, I joined the firm as a design leader, which was really about leading projects, leading design on projects, focusing on projects on design. And that was a pretty different thing than being the CEO of a firm. But I still remember this was an interesting thing. I was sitting at my desk after I'd been promoted to principal, which was something that I, I had really wanted. I wanted a seat at the table. I wanted a challenge. I wanted to be part of making something and changing things and you know having an impact but it was funny shortly after I was promoted I just sat at my desk and I started to think I started to do the math and think about where I was in my career and how many years I have left and realized that I had I don't know it was like 25 or more years left and I thought well what am I going to do with all of that like what's the next thing right yeah what's next and um what became apparent is I mean, first, I needed to get my feet under myself. But what I really started to learn was that something that I got really excited about was teaching, and I got really interested in people. Mm -hmm. And through, I think, my teaching at MIT, which I did while I was working full-time, which was a little bit of a tour de force, but an incredible experience. I would never never want to miss it um, as an experience, and I, I miss it, actually. It taught me a lot about how to make people successful in the goals that they set for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Which in a lot of ways is what teaching is. And it became something that I got really interested in. And so I became the chair of the board. And then when the board named me president, one of the things that was really important to me was to bring my leadership style to that role. 
And it's been two years now. And I think I'm finally figuring out how to do that. <laughs> I would say that the role has changed a lot because now I don't just have five clients or six clients. I have 185. Every single person in the firm is somebody that I'm responsible to. It's about thinking about a bigger picture and how every single thing that I do impacts people, impacts their lives, impacts their careers, impacts our clients. And so the responsibility has become a bit larger, I would say. The people skills is something maybe innate within you, and then you got to hone that through teaching. How about all of the other skills? Are the, the skills you had as a designer or a project architect or a principal, the technical ones, are those skills that you use on a day-to-day basis anymore? Or are you more in finances and numbers and Excel? I'm not personally in finances. That's why I have a really great CFO, which is really important. So, I mean, I have a really amazing team. They could run the firm without me. (laughs) Uh, What I'm really, I think what I do, and which is, which there's a parallels to having worked on, you know, how I work on projects and how I work with teams is I tend to be the dot connector is sometimes what I call myself. And that's sort of finding all of the different facts findings and ideas and bringing them together into something that becomes a view forward, um, a way to think about the big picture, but maybe in a different way to put all of the pieces together. And it's a lot like design. It's it's very much like design. You start design with constraints, mm-hmm. if you're lucky. And then it's this journey of talking to people, figuring out what people need, what an organization needs, what a site needs, what the other constraints are. And you put all of that together to be a unique thing, a unique building that becomes part of this culture of the client that you're working with, right? So it's about creating something that isn't just yours, but it's something that you hand over. It's something you're creating for other people. And in some ways, that's the same thing, right? I'm creating, I'm helping create something. I'm helping guide something for other people. I think that's actually really interesting. You know, you made me think about something. Shepley Bullfinch, as you know, has been around since 1874. So a really long time. And it's gone through many generations. And um, next year, we're going to celebrate our 150th anniversary, which is kind of still hard to believe. And it's, mm-hmm. I find it incredibly hard to believe that I get to be in this position during that time, which is amazing. And it's really a celebration of how we as a firm have transformed ourselves, how we have been transformed by our environment, by the people that work with us, by our clients. And... It's amazing to look at it sort of as this design journey of how a firm was formed so many years ago and has become, in some ways, I almost sometimes think about it as, you know, an institution, but also as a family. And again, it is about making that something that is going to be around again for another 150 years and is going to be able again to transform itself in some pretty interesting times that are ahead. I mean, I, that's that's a big piece of it too. Is it's thinking ahead, understanding or trying to understand what are all these new things, AI, you know, virtual reality. How is that all going to change our profession? I personally believe it's it, it's going to be a big change. It's 
really over the next decade or so going to be really different than it has been in the past. I think we're going to see some acceleration of change. So how we surf that wave, how we figure out how to be successful in that, and at the same time, really understand what makes us who we are so that we don't lose ourselves on that journey. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems too, as you're describing your role, you're responsible for identifying the elements of kind of these project ecosystems, of pulling the right people together and the right skills. And then you also mentioned too, that the industry is changing so significantly and the, the company has probably changed since its inception almost 150 years ago and will change significantly in the next 150 years. The talents that you're pulling from your team members, how are you then pairing that with all of these emerging technologies? How, how are you approaching weaving in these, these technologies that we may or may not know a little bit about, but really how do we apply them to the work that we do that we're already so familiar with doing it another way? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I, I did this really interesting little, it's not really research, but just looking back and we have archives, so I can look at all the way back to 1874, how we were doing work then. Oh, wow. And when you look at the tools that we used, mm-hmm. you really go through the decades and look at the tools. They have, we haven't left that many behind. Mm-hmm. We've added a whole lot, but we haven't left many behind. So we don't draw on linen anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we still sketch. We still make drawings. We still model. We still do all of those things. And at the same time, we do energy modeling. We work in VR. We um, are now engaging and collaborating, I'll call it, with AI to create renderings, to create sketches, to mm-hmm. think about layouts, to think about you know energy use. In the end, when you really think about what it all comes down to is it's being able to communicate ideas. Mm-hmm. It's being able to communicate and collaborate with others to work on those ideas together. And I mean that not just with each other's architects, but with our building partners, with our consultant partners, with our clients, right? So it is about translating, communicating ideas. And I think that in and of itself is probably the thread that runs through architecture from the very beginning, regardless of what the tools are. So to me, that's the thing we really have to focus on being even better at. If you were to look at your ideal employee at a entry level, a mid-level and a high level is the ability to collaborate and to kind of communicate ideas, one skill that you hope to see in each person or is the ideal is there like an ideal skill that you hope entry level people have and then it's honed and developed into something else maybe mid level and then something else even at higher level mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm going to sort of sidestep this a little bit because i don't think there is an ideal i truly believe that each one of us is unique different and we all bring really important strengths yes communication is a huge piece of that and we all can do that really differently so when I think about what to look for in people who are just starting their career in architecture, the most important thing is curiosity, a desire to learn, a desire to grow, a desire to make things better, and a willingness to engage with others to do that together. And, and I think what it really comes down to, particularly as people emerge 
and as they as they grow in their careers. As soon as you grow in your career, all of a sudden, you are no longer working by yourself. You're not just doing all of the drawings. You actually have to manage the process of doing that. And as soon as that happens, you become responsible for not just yourself, but you re become responsible for others. And so I think the other really important aspect to bring to this is the desire and the, the wish to make others successful, to work as a team and to create something together. Because that's, that's how you make others successful. That's how you're successful as, as a team. None of us can do this alone, right? I mean, I used to, I used to sort of say this to my students is you, you can have the most groundbreaking idea. You could have some idea that could solve some of the world's problems, hunger, you know, war, you name it. But if you cannot explain it and if you cannot get others to get excited about it and do it with you, you can't do it by yourself. All it is is an idea. So that's key. And you can learn that. You can learn communication. You can learn how to present. I was terrible as a presenter. The first time I presented at MIT during a class, I still remember it was about the future of cities. And it was just horrendous. It was an awful experience. I still remember we had, this was when we were doing still like actual mm -hmm. physical slides, not PowerPoint slides in mm -hmm. carousels. We had two of them. They had to be synchronized. I just got completely out of sequence. It was horrible. And it's good to remember that because I don't think any of us are perfect from, the, well, we're never perfect. Mm -hmm. But I, I think we all have opportunities to learn, get better. And for me, the secret in that was, to figure out how I could be me, how I could be natural. How can I inhabit any role, any presentation in a way that is not something that's studied. It's I'm not acting like somebody else. I'm, I'm acting like I want to be. And that takes time. It takes a lot of time. And it takes a lot of doing some things kind of in a weird way that you look back on and go, oh, that was pretty awful. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And do you think as time has gone on, starting as a designer and then moving up through the profession, have you had to get to know yourself as a CEO where maybe when you first started, were you a little like you deserve the role because you are selected by a, a trusted group of people to take on that role? But was there any doubt inside or, or times where did you feel yourself grow in, in comfort level as a CEO? Oh, of course. Yes. I mean, you grow up as an as a dis particular designer. So, you know, yes, I can talk enough about a healthcare project. I can't actually design a whole OR, but I, I got used to talking about those things. And I knew enough sort of rudimentary finance, but, you know, there were a lot of things that I had to learn. So there was a big learning curve that, yeah, was a little bit scary at times. At times. I, I think... Every time you learn, I actually listened to a recent, uh, it was during a recent podcast where I think it was the CEO of IBM who said that whenever she's learning, she feels really uncomfortable. It's a really uncomfortable experience. And she's starting to get to a point where now she wonders when she's not uncomfortable, whether she's still learning. 
And it really resonated with me because, of course, you don't know. And you care about doing it right. And you care about doing it well. And so it's it's an unknown. You're going into a role that you've never had before. And actually, people told me that before. They said, this is a role unlike anything that you've experienced. And you can't prepare for it in ways that will make you jump in and understand all of it all at once. You have to live. I had to live it. I had to live it. I had to depend on my colleagues. And they were really gracious with, you know, giving me space, giving me time, giving me advice, giving me feedback. I think for all of those who are listening, actually, (laughs) give your CEOs feedback honest feedback, constructive feedback, because if we can't hear everything, we can't see everything, but we want to. And so it's, it's really important and helpful to understand how people feel and what's working and what's not working because we can't see it. And so I think that's, you know, having an, an open mind to that and then taking advice, but also asking yourself how you want to inhabit this role. That's what I did. I tried to think about how I bring that teacher that lives inside to this role, how I, how I wanted to inhabit this role and how I could, because it's a, I mean, it may not be a 24 hour job, but it, you know, you're on a lot and it's not something you can put on and take off. You have to own it. You have to live it. You have to be it. And it's a journey to get there. You mentioned it's a it's a 24-hour role. What is your work-life balance now that you're in this position? Mm, that's a really good question. I um, <laughs> Work-life balance. I, you have to set boundaries for yourself. You really do. Because otherwise, there's so much that you can think about. There's no end to it. It's not like the project deadlines where you finish a project and then you've got a little bit of breathing room and you know you go to the next phase it's a little bit like that but you have lots of them overlapping all the time and so you're never done so there's never a time that is prescribed for you to take time and i think one of actually one of our board advisors early on helped me understand this a bit he said as you're going through your day Think about what you're doing and why you're doing it and whether it's something that is an external thing, whether it's something that's an internal thing, and whether it's something that's more pragmatic to do with operations of a firm or whether it's something about vision, whether it's something about thinking about the future. And try to keep a balance. You can't be too far on one side, too far on the other side. And that it's really resonating with me even more now after I've inhabited the role for um, a couple of years. Because it's easy to stay in the weeds. It's really easy to stay in the weeds because that's where we live a lot on projects, right? Yeah, the details. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's also tempting to just stay up here and out there. But I think the connection to the day to day is really important. And so it is this. It's this balance. And the same is true, I think, with, you know, the work-life balance. So keeping track of when you stop being productive, 
when when you're not able to zoom out anymore when you're not able to connect those dots see the patterns you need to take a break because you're not doing the firm any good anymore you know it is not about putting in the hours it is about what you bring to everybody else it's what about, it's about what you bring to the table so for me what it means is being protective of weekends and everybody has a different working style right i know people that are that interweave everything they have a little bit of time for themselves a little bit of time working on things and then it it all comes together for me it is i need more more chunks of time to just be able to create that space and recharge and do you encourage your employees to do the same oh yes I, i'm not always successful but yes <laughs> Absolutely. And we all do this. And it's really important because you can get so caught up in the work. And yes, it's really important. And there are all these deadlines, but it's really important for people to feel like they're grounded in their life with their families and their friends and the things that, in addition to the work, keep them energized. Because I think our profession is one where we give so much, right? It's not really very much of a task-oriented profession. We take on a lot of responsibility and there's a lot of emotional investment in the work that we do. And you need to be able to recharge and build that reservoir in order to bring that to the work in a way that's fulfilling. Shepley Bullfinch is also very notable for the hybrid work. And I don't know if this information is outdated at this point, but I had connected with one of your employees at a SCUP conference this past mm-hmm. year and heard all about, and I've also done some research too in advance of this podcast, it's a hybrid or a dispersed work policy where mm-hmm. you're celebrating the flexibility and encouraging the flexibility, where I think a lot of firms out there in the profession nationwide dealt with hybrid or remote work during the pandemic because they had to, and it was a necessity. And now that we are out of the pandemic, have requested folks to come back in. What is your perspective on the benefits of hybrid work and is your firm going to continue with this policy? Well, the short answer is yes, okay. <laughs> we are. The long answer is that we found all sorts of surprising things as part of this experiment, right? We found that for some people, it was really great to be able to work from home. And as, as I said before, we are all individuals. We're really diverse and we absolutely believe in diversity in, in all of it, right? And with that also comes diversity of work styles and perspectives. And so we early on actually started to hire not anywhere near our physical studio spaces. So we have we have folks in Seattle, we have folks in Atlanta, we have folks in, let's see, Florida. They're truly across the country. And that was before the pandemic or during the pandemic? Well, a little bit of it actually happened before the pandemic, and that was much more sporadic. So we'd sort of tiptoed into it before. And then when the pandemic happened, but partly it actually really helped us because we were already thinking about how to set ourselves up for it. And so here we were, we had a lot of the tools in place, obviously we got much better with the tools, and we committed to actually hiring in that way. And so now we have five physical studios and we have one virtual studio. So we actually call that a studio and we're really working on how to create 
these different scales of communities in our firm, right? It's You can't be 180 people and be one community. There are different groupings that form around interests, around location, around community, around commitments to things. And so it's really about creating these ways that people can engage with the firm and with each other, regardless of where they are and how they are. And I think this is something that is also important to recognize that people's lives are not static, right? People's lives change, their needs change, their circumstances change. Somebody's partner, spouse, friend might move, family might need them. I don't want to lose that person. We don't want to lose that person that's been just a really important part of who we are. And so it's about making those kinds of situations possible. At the same time, it's really important for people to be able to be together in person and create meaningful relationships in addition to being like we are right now on the screen. And so as part of our sort of shift in how much space we really needed, we actually took a lot of that and invested it in a travel budget that is available to teams. A lot of our teams work across studios. So you might have a team that's made up of a project manager in Phoenix and a designer in Houston and a medical planner in Boston. And then, you know, other team members that are in Atlanta. And we find ways for them to be able to be together without burdening the project. So it's about creating an investment or about the firm really investing in ways for people to be together in ways that make sense at any given time. And we let teams discuss this and decide as a team when those times are, why they should be together. And I mean, there's some great examples of one time I was in the Boston studio and I look into this one of our big conference rooms and there, there are, I think, eight people in this conference room and they've got big monitors set up on the conference table. They've got the big screen going and they're in the last phases of coordinating documents. People had flown in from Phoenix. People had come in from Hartford. They were all sitting in this room together, collaborating and going through this intense coordination process and at the same time forming these personal relationships. And it was wonderful to see that it truly does make us one firm, not a Boston office and a Houston office and a Hartford office and a Phoenix office, but it makes us one firm that actually can connect to each other. So I think to me, that's incredibly important. And I think it's something that is really rooted in the idea that, again, we're it, it's about responsibility-based management, not task-based management. You don't have to have somebody look over your shoulder all the time. It, you know, it's about trust, right? We have to trust each other to actually do the work. We have to trust each other to ask. We have to learn how to make it possible for people to ask us questions, to make ourselves accessible. So yes, it's a big learning process for everybody to figure this out. It takes a lot of work. It's harder. It's more work. And I think it makes us better. Yeah, I can see how it would be more work because you can't just walk by someone, say hello, grab a lunch, something like that. If you're working with people across time zones and offices and locations, you definitely have to take an extra step to engage or to form connections with people. I've I've learned that too. I a little bit about me. I'm not sure if you're familiar. I I joined my firm based in DC, but I was totally remote. So the last year, my partner and I, we actually traveled. I'm from Philly originally, but I was living in San Francisco and then got the job based in DC, but was remote. 
So we spent a year just traveling around the country and we worked from different locations. Then we eventually settled back in DC. But during that year, I learned if I'm just working, we have, I think, probably like 200 people in our firm right now. And I was just working with a small team and I felt like I was letting all of this opportunity go to waste because I was just working with those maybe 10 people. So I started scheduling little meet and greets with just, hi, I would love to like grab coffee with you. It's going to be a half hour. I want to hear about you, what you do. And I worked through, I think I've probably done about 60 or a little bit more of those. So not everyone I have hit and some people have gone, some people have come since then. So the, the list is always changing, but just to meet people outside the project group, you really have to take yeah. that extra step. Yeah. And I'm wondering, how does your virtual studio work? Are there any things that that studio does specifically to engage and connect its members? So that's something that's in progress. And we're actually going through a process of figuring out how we do that best. I mean, there's some things we already do just sort of firm-wide that we have at the town hall every two weeks where people are invited to you know, join through icebreakers early on. And we actually also have this thing that we call um, bullfinch spotlights where folks that are either new to the firm or have been with the firm introduce themselves to the firm through a seven minute presentation to everybody. And it's been incredible to see all of these things. So it's, it's I think, a building on that, building on some of the things we learned there. And I think we're going to experiment. We are, in fact, experimenting a bit with virtual reality mm-hmm. to figure out if there is an avenue there. I mean, it's worth a try, right? Yeah. So we'll we'll see how it happens. I think the other really important part is collaboration tools. So having, you know, a specific channel on Teams for that studio and creating identity around it in a way that has meaning. And I think what happens, though, is we have to test it. You know, we, we're not going to get it perfectly right the first time. We're going to have to test it, which means, again, feedback, right? So we're going to try some stuff. Some of it's going to be great, and some of it's going to just need to be adjusted. And so it's it's a sort of a continuous learning process of how to put this together. I think the most important thing is to acknowledge and make sure that we're committed to doing that. It's not something you can just, you know, say, oh, we're going to do it. And then, like, two months later, <laughs> change your mind, right? That. Yeah. It's a commitment to really going through the process and and making that work. So, you know, talk to me again in a year and we'll see how it's going. Yeah, (laughs) But we'll still be working on it. Yeah. I know. I I was at a firm, a different firm during the pandemic, and we just went through so many different iterations of trying different things to keep people connected. And I think we all have a little bit less Zoom fatigue now. But there, yeah. I definitely understand how it's, you try a meet and greet, you try a show and tell and just different informal things to keep people connected and the information flowing. And it's nice too, to have that personal connection where we did like a, a like an animal show and tell. So everyone hopped on the Zoom and it was only 15 minutes. And then we all kind of simba our cats or our dogs and someone had turtles and you just get to know like, oh my gosh, like I know a little bit more about them. And I, yeah. you know, I know to check in with so-and-so has all these cats that she's rescued and it just connects you personally to your team rather than just on a, they have these skills and I have these skills and we bring them together for the project. Yeah, exactly. And it, I think it's, you know, you can do that virtually, you can do it in person. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think it becomes important to give people the option of doing those things. So, yes, yeah, I'm, we had our office year end or firm year end party. We had two of them 
Mm-hmm. And we actually invited people and their guests to come. So one was in Phoenix and one was in Boston. And wow. it was great because you just, you know, you have to celebrate with each other and um, get to know each other. And there, you know, folks were arranging activities around it to go see buildings together, see projects together. So it's it's those kinds of activities too, right? In addition mm-hmm. to the quick and virtual, it's an investment of time, but I think there's something about also broadening your horizon by getting out of your own place mm-hmm. and having conversations with other people experiencing other places. So it's an exciting time, I think. It's also a challenging time. Have you noticed your firm is able to attract and retain more talented people or without losing them because of less flexibility? It's hard to say. Um, our retention is definitely higher than average or I should say our attrition is lower. I don't know that I can, you know, safely attribute that to any one thing. Anecdotally, I do hear that people are grateful for the the flexibility, the ability to, you know, structure their day around their work in a way that makes sense for them. I also think that it it does allow us to create teams where the fit is right. In other words, if somebody's a really great fit for a project and they're not near a studio, it can still work and they can have a really meaningful experience there. They could have access to, you know, the kinds of projects that we're doing that they may not otherwise have where they live. So I think it just broadens possibilities. I think that's how I would describe it. But I think the evidence of, I mean, if you if you look at the evidence of retention, I would say it, it tells a story of people feeling like they want to stay for the most part. Which in this era is very important. Yeah. Because I think a lot of recruiters are always in people's inboxes, poaching, and their salaries have been very high. And then I think are kind of coming back down after the last year or two have just people have been getting outrageous offers. So it speaks a lot to your firm's culture and policies and work that it's been able to retain so many of its existing workforce and grow it. Yeah. It's thank you. I mean, it's, I think culture, that's a really, really important word. It's something that you can't just build. It has to come from within. It has to be something people live. Again, it's not something you put on. (laughs) It has to be real. I think actually that has been something throughout the time I've been at the firm. Whenever we ask people what's the most important thing to them about the firm, it's come down to people. That is, that's the number one thing. So it is that um, feeling connected, feeling, I hope, heard mm-hmm. and fulfilled and and feeling like there is a place that they can really be successful because of the flexibility, because of the diversity and because it's not one size fits all. Considering that it's not one size fits all, what advice would you give to a young person seeking mentorship who back in the day it was you were at your desk and someone came by and oh what is that on your screen you're doing it wrong or oh you know we're actually going to pivot and you could listen to the conversations going on in the office and you're present for those meetings mm-hmm. in a hybrid work environment how can a young person seek mentorship or ask for a mentor to advance their career 
That's an excellent question. I think what I would say is start with what you want to get out of it. Start with a question you might have and come with that question to somebody that you would like to talk to and curate that experience. I think in some ways we were counting on exactly what you described, that sort of learning by osmosis, right? Mm -hmm. I'm listening to the phone call of somebody talking to a client and sometimes you got the gist of it, sometimes you didn't. You only heard one part of the conversation and not the other part of the conversation. So think about the questions you have and ask those questions. Get on people's calendars, you know, just send them a message and ask them. I think you'll find that most people will be really happy and excited to share their experience with you. I think the other thing that you should ask them for, and you might do this at the second meeting, <laughs> is ask when they did some things that they wouldn't do again. What are some of the things they, they what is, what's some advice that they might give you or stories they might tell you where they did something that they learned from that they wouldn't do again? Those are the really important ones as well, because learning comes, you know, with failure usually. So fail quickly, learn fast. <laughs> yeah. We have a thing that we, um, we call them coffee chats. So we have them actually with our executive committee. So people can sign up to just for 15 minutes for just a chat to ask any question they want to just, you know, talk about things that are on their minds and it doesn't have to be long. So those 15 minutes, they're very short. They don't take that much out of people's day. I don't think many people are going to say no to that. Half an hour is nicer, but ask. And I think come in with, with questions to make it easier for a person to be able to, to answer. Um, but at the same time, create some open-ended questions where people can not just answer yes and no, but ask them about their experience, ask them about how how they got to where they are, what advice they would give themselves when they were, I don't know, just starting, when they were just getting out of school. Oh my gosh. Well, you're bringing up questions that I, I have not asked you yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I should circle back before I, my, my next question was going to be, what advice do you have for maybe mid or late career that are mentoring? But first I want to pivot and ask you if there was a time that, and this is your own question, so you can't fault me for it. <laughs> if there was a time where you made a, a mistake that you learned from. Oh yeah. Oh, there's lots of them. Uh, one is that I wasn't considering that the sun was going to come through here this afternoon. So that's why. <laughs> I've been watching it rise. as <laughs> I know, and I've been trying to get out of the way of it. So I'm there, here I am. I remember really early on, and this is a little thing. This wasn't a big thing. This was a little thing. But I remember um, really early on, I was a project manager. This is a role I fell into. I was didn't have the experience for it, but I grew into it. And um, I was. this was in Germany, and I had to travel back and forth. So I'd go, you know, travel to the project and then, you know, get on a plane and come back here to the States. And I'm from Germany, so I spoke German. So I was the only one on our team that actually understood what happened in these meetings. 
So I was the one ending up taking meeting notes. Now, something you should know is I, and everybody knows this about me, well, most people, I really, really hate meeting notes. I, I just, I really, if I don't have to do them, I'm happy. If I have to do them, I will. But I, they're just, it's just something that's hard for me. Mm-hmm. So I remember one meeting where there was a question, well, so do we have the meeting notes? And I had gotten them done before the meet, the next meeting, the week or two weeks after that, but not before. And I remember them saying, well, you know, we really should set a standard or an expectation for them to be done the day after the meeting mm-hmm. or the morning after the meeting. And I actually, silly as I was, said, well, that would mean I would have to do them on the plane on the way back. <laughs> I think about this now and I'm thinking like, what was I thinking? But it was so funny because, you know, it was me sort of thinking out loud and not really putting myself into the shoes of everybody else in that room. <laughs> yeah. That was thinking, well, yeah, so be, just because you're not from here doesn't mean that you don't have to do the meeting notes. That's not our problem. That's your problem, right? That's your responsibility. And it's funny, you know, the minute it was out of my mouth, I think I actually sort of figured out what I was saying. And you have these moments where you can't take it back. You can't undo it. You just, I did my meeting notes after that. And then next time, you know, I was in a situation like that, I would ask myself, what's their perspective? What if I were in their shoes? What would be important to me? And I think what that did is it put me on a journey that was on the way to leadership. Because as a leader, you have to think about what others need. That's your job. That's your role. You come second. Everybody else comes first. And so I think that was sort of one of those moments where I actively were doing something really silly. (laughs) Learned that. I've never forgotten. This was 30 years ago. Still remember, still remember what it felt like. Yeah. <laughs> to prioritize that that service, really, of service of others. Architecture is really yeah. serving others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the other question that you had brought up too is, and it might it might just be the, the same answer to the story you just told, but is there something that you would tell your younger self knowing that you end up where you are today? What would you go back and tell younger Angela? Oh, I would tell her, don't judge as quickly. Don't make assumptions. And ask a lot of questions. Because it's something that I've I've found myself, hopefully, <laughs> becoming less judgmental. I think teaching had a lot to do with that. And I learned so much more. And I was able to appreciate so much more what others needed and that, you know, and to question my own assumptions. Like just because something had always been a certain way for me didn't mean that it was the same way for somebody else. I saw this, I saw this um, graphic the other day on one of the social media sites and I, I'm sorry for whoever put this together that I can't remember their name, but it was a, a circle and the arrow pointing to it said, this is someone's life. And then there's a little dot in the middle of a circle and there's, and there's a little arrow to it saying, this is what you know about it. Uh, it's a really, uh, it was a really powerful image and it's absolutely true. So I would, I wish I could show myself that graphic when I was 20. Yeah. Just to consider the, the people you work with, the people you interact with are all dealing with the moment that you are with them in, in that time, but then so many other things too, historical, future things, present things that impact who they are. 
Yeah, it's it's incredible. I I remember actually hearing a story once. I think it was in a patient focus group where a cancer patient was talking about the fact that she had these beautiful blue flowers in her garden and the room that she got her chemotherapy infusions in had that same blue. And after she was done with her course of chemotherapy, that blue, she just couldn't look at it anymore. She had to rip out all the flowers in her garden with that blue color. And the thing it taught me was that just because something is a beautiful color doesn't mean it's beautiful to everybody. Mm-hmm. There's no absolute, right? There's, it's all relative to somebody's experience and the kind of associations that they make. And so, you know, you can, we could have a whole two more hours to talk, a whole day talking oh, about yeah. what is beauty, what is good design, what is good architecture, how do you, how do you get to that? And I think it's complicated. And it's those kinds of stories that make me think about the fact that we have as architects such a huge responsibility to the world, right? Every single line we draw, everything we model, it all turns into space. And that space directly affects people. And it directly affects how they act, how they feel, and how they in turn then will treat others. So we have this incredible ripple effect. And I I actually think if there's something that I, I would encourage our whole profession to do more of, is to learn more about why, to learn more about how people are affected by space. That's happening, but it's still, it's hard. It's hard work to figure out, but it's really important. Well, it's so subjective too. I'm sure, like you said, one person could think that that blue color was beautiful and then the next person had had a bad experience with it. And those two people come to a room, see the color, have totally different experiences about Mm -hmm. what that means. As architects, it's our job to design, especially in healthcare spaces too, design spaces that encourage healing and peace and a feeling of safety. And probably not everyone will agree with how we do it, but if we can help the majority of people have enjoyed their experience or lessen the the terribleness of that experience, especially in that healthcare setting, then then that's, that's as much as we can do. Yeah, exactly. And so before we change, I want to talk about the Chamberlain Cottage, but before before we do that, I want to go back to, you had given great advice on how young people, emerging leaders can ask for mentorship. If you are, say, a very busy mid-level or high-level manager or project architect, and you are too busy to do, to provide mentorship, you know, you're, you're talking to clients, you're working on schedules and deadlines, all of that. What advice would you have for those people to make space and time to give back and mentor again, especially in a hybrid environment? Mm. I don't know exactly how I would help them to unbusy (laughs) their schedule other than, well, actually I do. I would ask them to think about how they can empower others and take some of the work that they're doing and help others, teach others how to do it to broaden their capacity, right? Mm -hmm. And that's also a mentorship opportunity because you're teaching somebody how to do it. You're helping them learn something new and grow and in return, you grow. So the reason I think mentoring, taking time to mentor, it's all about being a two-way street. There are things that people who are just coming out of school, who are working with new technology, who are coming with new ideas and a new viewpoint, 
that they can teach us, right? And it's not like just because you have a lot of experience, all of a sudden, you know more and everybody has to learn from you. It goes mm-hmm. both ways. So I find that whenever I have conversations like this, I come away with an added, something added, another viewpoint, another perspective, another way of thinking about things. And I find those actually then turn into doors that sometimes open or, or, um, ideas that unlock other things. And so there is a treasure of ideas and creativity and learning that lives in mentoring that goes for both that participate. I think that's a great way to think about it, that it's not just a demand of a younger person to be mentored. It really helps helps the entire team and it's going both directions of if more people are mentored, they then they have a larger set of skills to help out on the project. They can take a larger role. That's less work that the manager is worried about because they have trained and trust a competent team member. And then they can, you know, maybe take on more work or maybe, you know, yeah, go to sleep exactly. at night or something like that. Yeah. yeah. It's really important. I mean, that's a key. That's the key to growth. You can't grow your role unless you can teach others how to do it and, and, you know, broaden your influence. Mm-hmm. My gosh, that's, I could ask a bunch more questions about that, but I won't. <laughs> I'm going to change to, so Chamberlain Cottage is yeah. a building that was a residence that was designed by Marcel Brewer and Walter Gropius. Mm-hmm. No big deal, right? <laughs> so, and this is a property that you own or your family owns? Not anymore. Oh, it okay. was an amazing journey. So we, my husband, who's an architect as well, of course, <laughs> we're looking <laughs> for an interesting site house project Mm -hmm. we wanted to be in an interesting place we wanted something somewhere near the water so we were looking around and we found this little cottage that had been in the same family for i think 55 years or something like that and was being sold pretty much as a teardown there had been a previous deal where somebody literally was going to tear it down and build a whole bunch of houses on this site it was a big site with a lot of wetlands right next to a river and a lot of, you know, uh, nature reserve around it. Mm-hmm. And it, the deal fell through because they couldn't make it work because it was wetlands and all these things, right? So we looked at it and we just fell in love with it. And so it was this tiny little cottage. It's a, it was 650 square feet and it was Breuer. It was more attributed to Breuer. Breuer was really interested in using local material. So he, having come from Germany, so I'm from Germany. I grew, I was born and raised there. I studied there for two years. And so, yeah, Bauhaus was an important, you know, piece of my education. Mm -hmm. So first of all, my friends couldn't believe we actually had this. And then they could really not believe that we were going to actually change it. (laughs) So, but what it was, it's a shoebox little proportioned volume of a building on top of a fieldstone foundation. So all New England materials, you know, clad in wood that overlooked the river. And there were some really iconic photographs of it. So we couldn't figure out there wasn't enough room and enough money for that matter to just restore it and build something next to it that we could live in. So we had to figure out how to put the two together. And so what we ended up doing is we created another sort of solid box that was a little bit of an echo, but quite different next to it. 
with all the bedrooms and things in it. And then in between the two, we created sort of a almost freestanding structure that connected the two, but was freestanding with its own support and floating roofs and glass curtain wall that we designed, wood glass curtain wall. This was in a wooded area. So it was, you had a view of the river, but you were in between these big, huge, tall pine trees. Mm -hmm. And we designed this pavilion-like space in between the two. So we actually even kept the outside wall of the cottage, outside materials. We had to reclad it all. It was rotted. They didn't believe in flashing at the time or something. So yeah. <laughs> we, we had to redo a lot of it. But it was basically, you saw the fieldstone foundation on the, on the inside. And it was a concrete floor that stepped down with a landscape, contrary to this elevated little box. And you were basically sort of inside, but you were really still outside in the landscape between these buildings. And that's how we sort of tried to create a bit of separation and to maintain this identity of this place. So that was really clear what we were building it wasn't trying to mimic change, but really build next to and with. The only other story that's a really, that was, I used to tell my students the stories, it was divided into thirds two-thirds of this cottage were living space and mm -hmm. bedroom and the other third was a sort of utility so it was the kitchen and it was a closet and it was the bathroom and that was in the 40s it was built in 1940 I think and back then even in the Gropius house the kitchen is in the back it's a utility space it's like you close the door you know it was not part of the living space like today so we actually took the kitchen out of that little third and put it where the living space had been mm -hmm. and created something that was more, you know, related to how we live today. And instead put the desk and the workspace in that one third together with the pantry. So all of the hardworking spaces were the ones that got to be part in that zone again. So it was sort of, again, an attempt to respect the thinking and the and the organization that had gone into that that building, that really mm -hmm. very self-contained building. It was a really fun project. It took forever. Two architects trying to do something together when they're married is a really interesting proposition. <laughs> I can imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it was an incredible place. It was amazing living there. And it's actually interestingly been in a couple of movies since then. So the two owners, there's two owners since then. Each actually had a, a movie, use it as a set during their time there. Yeah, one was Surrogates, which was a movie with Bruce Willis, which made the whole neighborhood very excited. And another one was called, um, I think it's Ava. And there's some, it's really fascinating to see how architecture and a building particularly that we're so intimately familiar with is portrayed mm -hmm. in a film, in a movie. Mm -hmm. uh, it gives you a real appreciation of cinematography and how how the thought about space is, isn't, isn't actually related directly to how we thought about living in the space, but it's all about how it shows up, you know, during this experience that the viewer has. So the bedroom ended up in the front hall right next to the curtain wall. And, you know, things were all over the place, completely different than the house was actually designed. Mm -hmm. but, and it was fascinating to see, again, yet another perspective of how you can interpret design, how you can interpret architecture and how they were thinking about how somebody was experiencing it versus how we were thinking about the experience of the house. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I've been yeah. going on forever. 
<laughs> no, this, it's so interesting. I have some experience in film and television too, and how something is physically laid out is not always necessarily how it's portrayed on TV. And oftentimes it's a surprise of, oh my gosh, like I was in that house or that space and it looks totally different on TV because of just the angles that they've cut and transforming the spaces that they need and they don't use the ones that they don't need. It was fascinating. There was one space that had all the right materials. It had the, you know, cypress wood cladding and the recessed baseboard, all of that stuff. And we kept looking at the scene. We kept reversing and looking at the scene. <laughs> and we couldn't figure out where in the house this was. And we finally concluded that it wasn't at all a space in the house that it must have built, been built on the soundstage. And they just mm -hmm. basically took the materials and the feel of the space and made it, you know, did, did, did such a good job of that, that it was absolutely believable that it was in that same house, except we knew it didn't exist. So it was, that was fascinating. Wow. I don't know if you can provide the links or any photos, but I'm sure listeners would be interested to see the house, but then also see maybe the clips of the movie so I can try to link those. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Well, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about everything from the structure of the company to your experience, to mentorship, to your home renovations. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Angela, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Well, thank you, Caitlin. It was a really, it was a fun conversation. It was nice to answer some really great questions and think about them together. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Architect Ed. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to share it with your network, leave us a five-star rating and review, and follow us on social media. Reach out to the podcast directly at architectet.com. That's architectette.com. Join us in two weeks for our next episode. See you then.